Picture this. It's 1940. You're a kid. Along with your three siblings, you've been sent to live with a mysterious professor you've never met so that you'll be protected from World War II air raids in London. The house is huge. The adults are kind of weird and disengaged. And you wander your way into an empty room and then into an empty wardrobe. Inside the wardrobe is a world called Narnia, in which you meet a unique cast of fantastical characters who are struggling through an endless winter thanks to the evil white witch who has taken control. Your siblings don't believe you at first. So lame. But when you finally return to the wardrobe with them, the plot thickens. It turns out that, as a family, you fulfill an ancient prophecy that two boys and two girls would one day arrive to make things right. But before you can do that, you have to do battle with the White Witch, who has successfully lured your brother to her castle with a candy called Turkish Delight. Along the way, you'll team up with a pair of beavers. You'll have a run-in with Santa Claus, even though Narnia hasn't seen Christmas in decades. And you'll find yourselves with Aslan, the all-powerful lion who is wonderful, terrifying, and the rightful king. If you haven't figured it out yet, listeners, that's the setup for C.S. Lewis's 1950 book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and we're talking all about it on episode 10 of the SSR podcast. On this episode, you'll learn a whole lot more about the historical and religious context of the story. If you're anything like me, that context is going to totally blow your mind and give you a wildly different perspective on The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You'll also find out which C.S. Lewis book I wrote a rap about in elementary school and which Narnian character scarred me so deeply as a kid that I actually struggled to read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe again, even as a 27-year-old. Today's guest is Caroline Ely, who is the co-host of the hilarious and fascinating Good Christian Fun podcast. You can find GCF on your favorite listening platform, and you can follow Caroline on Twitter and Instagram at Caroline's Farts. Listeners, prepare to wander into a snowy parallel universe where the forces of good and evil feel way too powerful for a group of kids to deal with. And hey, if you could subscribe, leave a review, and tell a friend about SSR first, well, that would be great. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hafkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Caroline. Thank you so much for joining us on SSR. Hi, Allie. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to get into this book with you. Yeah, let's so, do this. So we are jumping into The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which was your choice. And I want to know about your personal history with this book and why you wanted to revisit it for the show. Okay. Well, uh, you only gave me three options, so True. I had to choose it. Um, <laughs> uh, but I but I had read this book as a kid. And I have been like a big reader my whole life, Um, especially when I was younger. I was um, trying to, I don't know when I got this idea, but like seven or eighth grade, I just decided I need to know what all the classics are. So I'm just going to read them all. And I'm just going to start with Jane Austen because she's a good entry level girl book writer. And then um, read a lot through. And I also read a lot of these, like in my mind, they're all limped together. Like this with Christy Miller and this like demon book I, series I read, but like these box set book themes, whatever. Um, I got really into those and this was one of them. Um, so I'm pretty sure I read through all this probably in like a month or two, the whole Narnia series. But yeah, so I 
read this as a kid and I don't have a super strong memory of it, unfortunately, but I do remember really identifying with Lucy because um, I'm the youngest in my family too. And I could just kind of tell like she's a pipsqueak and she is probably not very believable a lot of the time and like just has like pure intentions, but everyone's like too busy being old and cool. And, uh, and I also had like a really, you know, big imagination. So her world was like, this is my dream come true. This is what I want to happen to me. Uh, I remember feeling that way. Right. Like I want to walk into a wardrobe and disappear into another world where there's snow everywhere. That particular invention that he did, like I has never left me that like you could walk into a room or a door somewhere and end up in a magical land is like, I don't know why it's so potent, but it's just something that's like never, never left me. It's pretty brilliant. And I do remember after reading it, like being at my grandmother's house and it was like a big house and it was actually my new grandmother's house because my dad had just gotten remarried. And so I was Uh new to the house and had never been there. And there were all these new cousins. And I remember exploring the house and she had a lot of old furniture with like big armors and um, like big bookcases. And I actually happened to have seen the tapes, like a tape throwback of the BBC adaptation of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe at her house. And so it was this like this moment of being like, oh, I've just been introduced to this world through the tapes. And then being in this unknown, like huge house with all of these like old things and wondering if I wandered into the wrong room. Yeah, it was like that kind of. So that's sort of my first memory of the story. (laughs) The best. Yeah. And as a kid, I was just constantly trying to like, quote unquote, explore, like just which usually descended me up in like a janitor's closet somewhere or something. But it's the idea that you have all these big buildings and you're so tiny and surely you're going to find something you're not supposed to and it's going to be great. And I did so much of that, probably like in no small part inspired by this book. Yeah. And Lucy really lucked out because she happened to wander into something super freaking cool. A lucky bitch. A lucky bitch, Lucy. I <laughs> just remember, I don't, I think I read this when I was pretty young. I think I watched the tapes first because I would have been probably like six at the time that mm-hmm. I you know, like first watched the video, which I think was made in the late eighties and was super creepy, but we can talk more about the reason okay. why it was so creepy. And I think I read the book probably when I was like 10 or 11. Like you, I was a pretty big reader and I just like wanted to read everything. Mm -hmm. And I remember just like being so taken with the epicness of the book. It was just such a big world. And I loved fantasy of all kinds. And this just seemed so magical. And I think it's interesting to look back now knowing what I know, both from what I've just like picked up over the years about C.S. Lewis and then doing the research that there's like so much more to this book than I realized at the time because I just thought it was this cool fantasy book. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like there's this huge historical context for it and it was born out of like World War II and everything. And and it's weird because when I was reading this again, the the fantasy aspect is pretty, I wouldn't say it's like crazily out of the box. Like it's pretty simple and pretty like he borrows from just a lot of fantasy characters that already exist, you know, like fawns and satyrs and whatever. But for whatever reason, that just works really well. And even as like, you know, a 28 year old, I was walking around like thinking about Narnia all the time. Like while I, when I finished this book, I was just like, man, that was good. I want to go there. That'd be cool. <laughs> yeah, can I still go? Am I too old? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's the horrible part is like you age out of Narnia. I don't know if you ever read the other part of the series, but when they get too old, they're not allowed to go back. I think I did. This is a super random memory, but I know at some point in elementary school, I wrote like a rap about Prince Caspian. Oh my God. 
And I wish I still had it. Maybe it was like, oh no, it was some sort of like project on like weird types of po, not weird types of poetry, like oh, right. new types sure of poetry. Like your cool teacher being like, write a rap about what you love. <laughs> exactly, and it had to be about like it was like a creative book report. You know, one of those teachers being like, it's not a boring book report; it's a cool book yeah, report. Big and, one. And I did Prince Caspian, and I remember being super proud of it. You should be. That sounds good, it's and probably sh- pretty unique. Yeah, I mean, it's a stretch, Prince Caspian as a rap, but. I did it. So you read the rest of the series? Yeah, I read I read them as a kid and I I do remember it went pretty far downhill from here. Like I remember the other books felt actually really disappointing as a kid because there was one in particular where there's no magic in Narnia at all. Like none of the animals talk anymore. All the humans are like sad and uh, mean to each other. <laughs> yeah. And I remember being like really let down because this first book is so magical and charming and like wonderful. And as you said, just like expansive and epic that it was like a real, it was kind of a struggle to get through the rest from what I remember. Yeah. And this was the first book he wrote. But then once they sort of categorize them chronologically, I guess it falls into the second in the series because there's kind of a prequel, The Magician's Nephew, which I sort of remember now is the setup and it involves the professor whose home the children are taken into. And Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. And I vaguely remember that. But I always think it's interesting when there's like a first book in the series that then the first book being written. Yeah. And then there's all these other books. (laughs) I was reading the Wikipedia page today and apparently like there's all this struggle and like kerfuffle about the chrono, the like order of the books, because apparently like he he wrote this book first, of course, and for a long time it was the first book of the series, but then like publishers rearranged it so it made more sense or something, and then all the like true fans were like, "What are you doing? This is wrong." And then even like C.S. Lewis's son got involved and like defended their choice to rearrange the book and all this. Like it was way more of an ordeal than it should be. Like it, it doesn't matter really. That Wikipedia page is deep. It's one of the longer Wikipedia entries I found. If anybody has like a few hours free and you just want to dive into a nice meaty Wikipedia entry, check out Narnia. Yeah, because they they do a good job of going into like C.S. Lewis's background, his politics, his religion and all that stuff and how it played into it too. One thing that I remembered when I started reading this book was how uh, the kids are escaping air raids that are going on in London and going to this professor's house. And in the, I didn't know this until I read the Wikipedia page today, but apparently that happened with C.S. Lewis. Like he was one of the houses in the country. And then there were kids that came to live with him. And that's sort of what inspired him to write all these stories. But I even just realized I remembered that reading the book. And I was like, man, this must have been so powerful for kids to read this story. And probably such a necessary thing that a lot of kids did do was just retreat into imagination and pretend this world doesn't exist. And like, there's no rain, there's no bombs. I'm in like a forest with a witch and a lion and stuff. Yeah, that's such a good point, just given what was happening in history at the time. And I I read the same thing about C.S. Lewis having children in his home. I think he had three girls staying with him. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing that inspired him that I think I had read was from even further back in his history was he had seen a painting somewhere of a fawn like carrying packages yeah. with a scarf on. And so he'd had that stuck in his head. And then he met these children that had been moved to his home during the war. And so those two mm-hmm. things kind of like blended together and he decided to finally write the book, but it took him 10 years to write it. Right. And so they were like probably 20 by the time it was done or something. They're like, thanks. You yeah. Know. They were like, this, this is now a really <laughs> creepy thing that you're imagining me doing. <laughs> yeah. You're so, why are you so obsessed with me? You're random man. We're not even related. Get over it. I'm back with my real mom now. 
<laughs> yeah, that is, it is funny, but it's kind of sweet if you think about it, that that was the whole reason he wanted to write it. It was probably like comfort kids who are going through a horrible world, you know, maybe he needed it for himself too. Yeah. I mean, just when you really step back and you think about the fact that these kids were basically sent off to live with people they didn't know, they had met this professor, even I think we as readers have questions about like, who is this guy? I mean, I made a note early in the book where I was like, I wish I knew more about the professor. I can't imagine mm-hmm. what you as like a kid in real life would think. Would do you- would have, yeah, live with this like eccentric, quiet man who didn't hang out with you or anything. Yeah. And yeah. this like housekeeper who was yelling at them, like it, I'm <laughs> sure it was like a really scary situation. So I think your point is a really good one that at the time kids really responded to this. I was reading that the um, like the critical reception to it was kind of lukewarm. And, oh, really? Yeah. So it came out in 1950. So about 10 years after all of this was actually happening in history. Mm-hmm. And I guess the idea, the widely held idea was that fantasy was like frivolous for kids to be reading, which makes sense when all of these like major things are happening in the world. And then some people felt like it was just like too moralistic and too overtly Christian. And Mm. then there were also the ideas that it was just too violent. And I think like there's not that much physical violence in this book. So I think that might just be a reflection of it being 1950 and it being like a little bit more puritanical at that time. Right, right. I mean, I was I was kind of surprised by the the battle scene when he does kill the witch because it does talk about him like stabbing her and stuff. And I was like, ooh, this is, this is quite of intense. I I don't know if I'd let like a four year old you know know that part of the story or whatever. But but yeah, but beyond that, it's not like crazy. And you would think like kids that have gone through war, of course, know like much worse stuff. So maybe I don't know. Maybe it was just parents trying to protect them. Like we're done with that stuff. Like we're done with this violent world we don't need more of it in their literature too yeah that makes sense and I also think obviously I'm sitting here looking at it from a 2018 perspective and as a kid was looking at it from like a 1999 2000 perspective and like had been watching way more violent stuff on tv oh yeah (laughs) so I'm like this is nothing I mean it's a really short battle scene yeah exactly (laughs) it's a really short battle scene which I actually liked because I feel like the boys were sort of in charge of the physical battle and mm-hmm. the girls kind of at the beginning, I was upset because I was like, the boys get the swords and Aslan yeah. wants them to like take control. But in the end, it's Lucy and her older sister, Susan, who are sort of like really in the thick of the action. So I thought it was kind right. of cool that the like real battle scene was a little bit short lived. Yeah. And I have some thoughts about that because as I was reading this now, like as a feminist, I was trying to think like, what, how does he treat these siblings differently? And and what does he do with the girls versus the boys and everything? And there is a pretty, like, obvious moment where he gives the two boys, like, weapons, basically. And the girls get, like, a healing potion and a horn, you know. And um, and I think he even says, like, you know, when girls get involved in battles, then it's, like, a bad, it's a nasty business or something. But the other part of it, too, is, like, these girls have to be really mentally tough. And no one is really taking care of them. Like, there's not a lot of, like, chivalry going on. Like, they're in in the thick of it, as you said. And speaking of... Christian overtones. I don't know. Are you pretty familiar with like the Jesus, you know, resurrection story at all? I'm familiar enough. Um, and I just kind of had to laugh out loud to myself because reading this as a kid, I was like, Oh, this fantasy story, there's a lion, like what a crazy (laughs) thing that happened. And then reading it again, you know, obviously I'd, I'd heard over the like 
15, 20 years since I read the book that Mm -hmm. this is an allegory and it's clearly like a Christian story. And so reading it again, I was like, oh shit, this is, this is exactly the crucifixion. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it is. It is. And so part of the the biblical crucifixion story is that um, the first people that saw Jesus right after he like came back to life and came out of the grave or whatever were women. And that was a big deal because apparently at the time, if in a court of law, like if you needed uh, witnesses, women, there had to be seven women for every one man or something. Mm-hmm. And there were, I'm totally botching this, but there were that many women that saw Jesus like when he came out. And I've heard that told many times that like that was really dignifying for women and like really like exalting them basically. Like they're the ones that got to see him when he, he was done. And they were the ones that believed it was him, not the disciples, like all these men that had been falling around. And so when I was reading the story, something I had never noticed before was that like Lucy and Susan are with him as he dies and they're with him right after. And they're the ones that get to like really reap the joy of like he's back to life and they like tumble around in the forest for a while it's kind of weird um yeah, they like romp around with the lion yeah. <laughs> but okay. they're the ones that like witness his his resurrection so to speak and i thought that was kind of cool and i was like oh he just like straight up just stole that from the bible as well like, i didn't see that before yeah just like you said with the um crucifixion story it's very dignifying for them like in the mm-hmm. moment, I remember thinking, oh, of course, like they sent the boys off to do battle and the girls are kind of having to right. sneak away in the middle of the and night. do the like care thing and whatever. Yeah. And they are totally dignified in this situation by being the mm-hmm. ones who are really like right by his side as all of these things are happening and as he's basically saving civilization as he knows it. Yeah. Yeah. And they're the ones that, yeah, that are like there and who he like tells the secrets to and it explains things to and everything. And that's kind of special. Yeah. Susan doesn't have much of a personality throughout no. the book. No. And as the oldest daughter in a family, I, that makes me kind of sad. <laughs> that's so funny. Cause I, of course, originally read this as the youngest daughter of the family. So I was like, Lucy, what's up? You know, I'm the girl I guess to do it all. And this time when I was reading, I was purposely trying to like imagine myself more as Susan or try to like pick up more on Susan and like like her better because she always just seemed kind of like, Meh, you know, in the past. Man, there's not a lot there. Like she, she sometimes like pushes the action forward by just saying they should do the dangerous thing or whatever. But beyond that, there's there's just not much to her. Yeah. And I kind of relate as like, you know, when you're the oldest in the family, it's like the younger siblings are always upstaging you a little bit. And (laughs) yeah, (laughs) so I wonder if that was, you know, kind of what he was intending. But Lucy obviously is the primary protagonist in the book, I think. And I, I wonder if the fact that she's the one who discovers the wardrobe and Narnia in the first place is meant to be foreshadowing that in the end, she's going to have this like major role in the climax of the book. I think so. Well, I think it just indicates that like she she's the one that always takes Narnia the most seriously from the very beginning or the most serious. And like and I think that that pays off for her, basically. And I feel like she figures out the game a lot earlier than a lot of people, too. She does. You mentioned this briefly before, and I want to talk about it for a couple more minutes. This idea of like nobody believing her. Mm-hmm. which I found in the reading that I've been doing for the podcast generally is kind of a trope in kids literature. Mm-hmm. And again, like not to get like too raging feministy hashtag me too on the listeners. No, but it's real. Yeah. But it's always been little girls in the books that I've read for mm-hmm. the podcast. Um, Matilda is a great example where there's mm. several situations throughout Matilda where Matilda and her friends talk about how nobody will believe them if they 
tell their parents about like how terrible the school is. That's episode three. Mm-hmm. If anybody hasn't listened to the Matilda episode yet, but that's a great example. And I'm just finding more and more that throughout kids' literature, there are these little girls that are either assuming that nobody will believe them if they tell the truth or who like straight up aren't being believed like Lucy. Oh, that's terrible. It's sad, and it, it, but it's interesting. I wonder if it's, it's almost good because as the reader, you're always compassionate to them because you know that they're actually telling the truth. Like you never doubt Lucy that she actually went to Narnia. Like you know it. But yeah, it is, it is interesting that it's always the little girls. And she straight, straight up gets like gaslit by Edmund at one point who like went with her and then is like, I don't know what you're talking about. You're crazy. And yeah, it's really frustrating to read that as a, as a woman and like in the current you know atmosphere and everything. Just like, ugh. And obviously I'm like reading into it more now and I'm probably looking for situations where I can like rail on authors from the 40s and 50s and be like, what are you doing? It's time, you know. Yeah. Like let's move forward. I I, I need to do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I like to think that hopefully books that are being written for kids now, like if it won't be like this so consistently, I did totally relate to that feeling of Lucy. And I think everybody can relate to that feeling of like being a kid and just nobody listening. And I thought that was really well done. And I loved how she stuck to her convictions on it. I thought that was really cool. Mm -hmm. As a counterpoint to that, though, when they go to the adult and they tell the professor about it, Susan and Peter do, he believes Lucy, like, despite all their like very logical arguments that like, well, you know, maybe she's feeling weird and lonely or whatever. And he goes through all of the stuff of like, have you known her to be a liar? do you, have you checked, you know, and all this stuff and like, do you think Edmund lies sometimes? And he's like, well, then she's either going crazy or she's telling the truth. And I think she's probably telling the truth. And it's like, it's pretty, it's like a pretty rocking moment for the professor. I loved that part. Yeah, that's so true. I hadn't thought about that in the context of my like feminist rage. Yeah, Um, yeah. But yeah, that's kind of like the best case scenario if you're going to go tattle or like share your story with someone. Yeah, totally. I think this is a good time to talk about Edmund because we have started to talk about what an asshole he is. (laughs) Okay, similar to Susan, this time when I was reading Narnia, I was also trying to be more sympathetic to Edmund because he's such a little shit. And I think he gets uh, the short end of the stick literary wise. So anyway, so I was trying to think of like, where could I find like something to love or like recognize an Edmund? Like there's got to be something here. And I found something, but I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are. Well, okay. <laughs> In some ways, I think he's, he's just kind of a literary device. Like he exists yeah. to be the foil to primarily Lucy and to the siblings somebody has to disagree with Lucy somebody has to be in disbelief somebody obviously Mm -hmm. needs to screw things up so royally that then Aslan needs to make a deal with the White Witch and sacrifice himself somebody needs to play that role obviously and I am not sure if Edmund is meant to represent any particular like character in the New Testament, I don't I don't know enough about the Bible to say whether or not that's true, but I was wondering that throughout. Like, is he meant to represent a certain person? Or is he meant to represent a certain Christian idea? Or is he purely a literary device who is the counterpoint to kind of all of the good things that are going on with the other kids? And, yeah. and that's cynical of me because, like you said, I'm sure there's redeeming things about him. But I'll leave it to you. What did you like about Edmund? Well, that's a, that's a good question. Now I want to think about like, if I had to pick a pure, like, you know, one for one 
equivocal example of like a biblical character. I don't know. But I, I think I don't think he represents like the idea of sin. I think Turkish delight is sin because once you do it, you keep wanting to do it. Um, but I, I don't know, maybe he's Judas or something like the betrayer. But but when I was reading it this time, way at the end of the book, they they mention he mentioned so briefly in this sentence, like the root of Edmund's evil, basically. And it was like they saw I think the line is something like they saw the way Edmund was before he went to that nasty, nasty all boys school where he was sent off or something. And so you get the idea that like he wasn't innately born with this. Like he went to a terrible place that probably made him like whiny and mean and like cruel for some reason. But then on top of it, like Peter is really mean to him. I don't know if you noticed that in the book, like he's really brutal to Edmund and, and often like doesn't believe him, you know, just right off the bat. And at any point if Edmund says anything, Peter just assumes the worst. Like even if Edmund meant it or not, like he just assumes he's trying to undermine them or he's being cowardly or he's only looking after himself. And like, he never says a kind word to him once really. And to me, I when I was trying to read for a more compassionate view of Edmund, I was like, I could understand how he would not really be rooting for the kids in this story. Like, I could understand he would go to the White Witch and someone that treated him with kindness and like promised him, you know, dignity, basically being a prince or whatever. So, well, especially if they had been sent away from their parents, and yeah. like, who knows? Maybe there was a backstory. Maybe he's super close to his dad, and yeah. And now he doesn't have his dad and Peter's kind of pushing him away. So I guess that is like an interesting way to think about it. And I think that it's easy to forget this like real world context or it's easy for me to forget at least that we're dealing with characters that have been through potentially like a really stressful traumatic situation. Mm -hmm. And maybe we're supposed to be a little bit more sympathetic to Edmund specifically because mm -hmm. of what they're going through. So that's a really good point. Yeah. Well, and we are asked to like forgive Edmund pretty quickly, like all things considered. I mean, all we know about his like great, you know, come to Jesus moment is he has a talk with Aslan and, and is just like set straight all of a sudden. We're supposed to be like, okay, you can be a king. Like, that's fine. And so I think, yeah, I think hopefully we're meant to read with a little bit more compassion over Edmund instead of just like he is the, the like embodiment of evil, just like the witch basically. Right. And we're not supposed to think that we're just like forced to forgive him. Like we're supposed mm -hmm. to maybe think further than that maybe. I hope so. I don't know. Well, this is kids, so probably not. But yeah, it's, <laughs> like yeah. if my niece is reading this, who's four and she's obsessed with bad guys, she would just be like, he's the bad guy, right? You know? Yeah. And that's definitely how I read it. It's just, it's such a weird experience because I think too about the fact that like this is a big read aloud book too. I read somewhere that like a huge percentage of teachers read this to kids in middle school, which seems a little old, but it does seem old. Doesn't it? Yeah. It's a big read aloud book. And so I just think it's interesting to think about like, sure, we're reading this for the purposes of like my podcast, but there are adults out there who are reading it to their kids or reading it to their students. And I have to think that like if I as a parent someday when I have kids were coming back to this book for the first time having not read it for my podcast, I'd be like, holy shit, like there's a lot going on here. Yeah. And I would probably to my kid be like, don't be like Edmund. <laughs> yeah. In the moment I'd be like, we have, we don't need to feel bad for him about anything. Yeah. There's no such thing as a nuanced character. Like he's just bad. Don't worry about it. Yeah. He's evil. Speaking of Turkish delight, because I don't know about you, but when I read this book as a kid, I was like obsessed with the idea of Turkish delight. Obsessed. I am also the little kid of like, <laughs> most of my memories are like food based in one way or another. <laughs> like 
my whole memory of Airbud is like the pudding cup scene with the golden retriever or like Same. uh hook that feast they have with play-doh like that's pretty much all i remember from that movie too so so yeah turkish delight really really stuck with me for a long time and I read this article in Slate that was written in 2005, and it was, I think it came out right before the big Disney movie released. Oh, right. And the writer was saying similar things about how, like, this idea of Turkish Delight had really stuck with him and how in anticipation of the movie he, like, wanted to finally taste it and see if it was actually good. Oh, that's great. And this is what he had to say about it. It's really dramatic. Okay. <laughs> And so, with anticipation, I took a bite of the Turkish Delight and a second later spat it into my hand. (laughs) I told you, dramatic. It tasted like soap rolled in plaster dust or like a lump of Renuzit air freshener. The texture was both waxy and filling looseningly chewy. And then he goes on to say that he basically had all this Turkish Delight left over from his experiment. And so he went and like put it on all of his coworkers' desks. And the closing line of the of the essay is, what was it that robs the treat of its luster once it was removed from its native habitat or from the pages of Narnia? Maybe, I thought, it really is an enchanted food after all. A week later, as the Turkish delight hardened, uneaten, I went by and told my friends they could throw it away. <laughs> so moral of that story is that Turkish delight is really gross, I guess. It's bad. I feel like I had it one time and I can't remember much about it. There's got to be different kinds you can have. Like, I hope I hope there are. I need to believe that it's good. We need, yeah, I think we need to have some faith about that. The other point yeah. that the article made, though, was that, again, in, like, 1940, kids probably didn't have access to any candy. And probably, like, real candy. Like, they, if they had to take five bar, like, their, their dicks would fall off. Oh it's my God. so good. And yeah. then they would throw up for, like, three weeks straight. <laughs> I heard a story one time that, in China, they don't have like nearly as much refined sugar and stuff as we do. And so they gave some people like Oreos and they literally started throwing up because it was so sweet. <laughs> it's like their system couldn't handle it. Oh my God. We're like, give me a sleeve. Like I'll take it all. <laughs> that like nothing else will make you feel like a disgusting, ugly American than that. <laughs> it's like my system has no problem with Oreos. Give me more. Bring it on. I'll just take the <laughs> sugar straight actually. Yeah, that's fine. So one thing that I, I've been waiting to air this personal struggle on the podcast because, okay, so when I went back in to read this book, it literally took me four days to get past the 11th page. Okay. I'm a fast reader. I read a lot. And here's why. Mr. Tumnus was coming. And I feel like I was traumatized by Mr. Tumnus as a kid. And as soon as I knew he was coming, every night I said to my husband, I was like, nah, we can just like turn the light out. I don't need to read. And I had to read it that first page about him, like literally in the daylight. Oh, man. Isn't that crazy? Oh, wow. Man, that's, I feel like that's reminding me of being kind of scared of Mr. Tumnus too. And I don't know if it's, maybe it's because I saw that tape, like that VHS, BBC TV adaptation of this first. Is he pretty scary in that? I haven't seen that. I did go back and watch a clip of it while I was getting ready for the podcast, and maybe I'll include it in the show notes. He's not particularly scary. Also, hilariously, because it's 1988 and they didn't have like great animation or anything like that, it's literally just a dude wearing like furry pants. (laughs) 
and like no shirt and a really bad wig. Just kind of like walk, walking on his tiptoes. Exactly. He doesn't have, because I guess a fawn is meant to be half goat. Yes. I think. So yeah, yes. he doesn't have like four goat legs. He only has two. So it's like a very weird look. Oh, well that is, that is legit. Fawns only have two legs. Oh. Centaurs are the one that have like full horse body, all four. Oh, I didn't know that. Well, there you go. So Mr. Tumnus is not a freak. He's good. He's a good fawn. Wow. Now I really understand why I brought you on for this episode. <laughs> That's what I bring to the table. Dropping knowledge. So he just legitimately scared the shit out of me in that BBC TV adaptation. Yeah. And I don't know if it was because of this concept of like stranger danger. Yeah. And it is really creepy when you think about the fact that, like, Lucy runs into this weird half-man, half-animal in the woods. And he's basically like, want to come back to my place? And she goes with him. And again, I understand that this is, like, a narrative device in the story and it had to happen to move the plot along. But when you, like, really take a step back and think about it, that's really terrifying. And then she goes there and he has, like, a mental breakdown. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. The second time, right? Or the, is that the first time? The first no, time. Oh, yeah, the first time he has a mental breakdown. Doesn't she fall asleep at his place, too? Well, yeah, because she play, he starts to play this really weird flute. Yeah, it is very... Well, it's confirmed Stranger Danger because you find out he was going to kidnap her and give her over. But also, like, yeah, it's it's a little disconcerting when you read it. It, it is a little like, why is he going to hang out with this girl so long? Okay, even if he needs to do it for a job, why is he still doing it, though? Because now he's just doing it for fun. Right, and now he's, like, trying to get her to comfort him because he's upset, because he feels guilty. And Mm. then she basically is like, why are you crying? You're, like, a big, strong fawn. Mm. Yeah, and then it's, it's weird. And then at the end, when they reunite, they're, like, dancing together. There's something about it that really stuck with me I think like way deep in my subconscious to the point where I yeah. like, had such a hard time getting back into the book I'm so sorry and I'm glad you pushed through because that is that is scary I don't yeah. like that I think I somehow like mentally was able to deal with it by thinking of the fawn as like also childlike a little bit it's not as weird but that's that's not true I know it's not so it's bad <laughs> it's it's like creepy as fuck <laughs> it's creepy I hated it. Um, well, in the new one's James McAvoy playing Mr. Tumnus, so. Oh, true. Not so scary. That's true. That Yeah, you're right. I think I well, saw the movie, and I, I kind of blocked it out. I don't know if I, like, went to see it with my little sisters and was like, I'm too cool to watch this movie. <laughs> but you're right. That Mr. Tumnus is definitely less creepy than, A, the book Mr. Tumnus, and then BBC Mr. Tumnus with his, like, weird furry legs. I, uh, truth be told, was kind of sad when the Disney movie came out because, and I hate to admit this, I didn't think Lucy was, like, cute enough. <laughs> and when, like, that's me, you know? Right. Like, I'm Lucy and she's me, then I feel, like, kind of hurt. <laughs> You're like, first of all, they should have contacted me first to make sure I actually wasn't young enough to yeah, be Yeah, just in make it. sure I wasn't busy or anything. Right. And then, like, Susan is so beautiful. And, like, mm-hmm. even though the, that actress is probably, like, 12 or 13, just looks, like, old and regal and, like, gorgeous. And you know, stupid. Yeah. I hate her. She's the worst. <laughs> She's the worst. She's the worst. Yeah. So Mr. Tumnus was as creepy this time around as I remembered him. And I did feel kind of validated for my fear. 
Well, that's good. Yeah. Like, I think that actually should be comforting because that meant you as a little kid had like a good radar on bad men. Yeah. And my parents did like a really good job of teaching me not to talk to strangers. (laughs) I have just in a natural, innate stranger danger sense. So I don't think they even needed to teach me. (laughs) Good for you. My parents really had to work on that probably. (laughs) Um, So we'd be remiss not to talk about the witch a little bit. And about that like run-in, the first run-in that Edmund has with her when he wanders his way into Narnia initially. He like runs into her. She's out on her sled. And initially she is extremely offended that he's there. And then when she realizes that he's a human, also known as a son of Adam, Mm -hmm. she is like very interested in him. Mm -hmm. What were your like first impressions of that moment revisiting it now? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know. Again, I I felt like I was reading her a little different this time. And a lot about her made me really sad, actually, just Mm. like what she's reduced to and like clawing for just some scraps of power, even though it's all awful. And like whatever she has is just awful. Like she's got this little like gnome guy who's like rude and sassy. (laughs) I kind of love him though. In order to get what she wants, she has to kill Aslan and she's turning him to stone and she's scary for sure. But it, it is cool that like, and I had totally forgotten this until I read it again, but to, to hear kind of like her, her origin story by the end of the book, you find out like she used to be the executioner for Aslan and has been around since like the dawn of time. And she is a djinn, which is like a giant or, or something or like just some kind of elfy re- relative yeah she's like half giant half human maybe is that yeah right? which is but i think what haggard is from gin, which is yeah and a gin is looks like a human but isn't a human like maybe kind of like an elf or something okay and they're like that's the worst thing you could possibly be is someone that looks like a human but isn't so in some ways like i uh i kind of saw her as like this outcast from like the rest of lovely Narnia where everyone seems to have their place like she's always just been this freak that everyone just assumes is bad hmm. so I guess like Edmund I kind of can see like yeah I guess where she get here that means good yeah. and but also she is very scary yeah well the way you're talking about her I don't know if you ever read the um Gregory Maguire did a series of books that were all from the perspective of villains in well-known fairy tales. So Wicked, the musical, was based on a Gregory Maguire Oh, I didn't know that. Called Wicked, and it's all about Elphaba, who's the Wicked Witch of the West in yeah. The Wizard of Oz. And I saw the play of it. I didn't realize he did a whole series of these. That's cool. Yeah, they're really cool. And similarly, like, you learn that Elphaba has this really sad backstory, and obviously, you know, it doesn't make her behavior okay, but it does allow you to read her as a more sympathetic character. So that just right. kind of made me think of that while you're talking about the mm-hmm. White Witch who... What did you feel when you read this again seeing her? Um, I think that... Turkish delight is again like the number one impression that I get from that scene which is Mm -hmm. like she's luring him into her world and I actually hadn't thought about the fact that Turkish delight itself is what's meant to symbolize sin until you mentioned it but that makes total sense Mm -hmm. that's the object that she's using to tempt him to basically turn his whole family into this evil being and I also just think this whole image of her like on the sled in this snowy world and 
I just think it is such like a beautiful mental image. And I think it's very glamorous. It is. And like you picture her being covered in furs and like she has like a nice hot drink and she can like conjure up Mm -hmm. any kind of food she wants. It's such like a powerful image. So that's kind of cool. But Edmund is just so squirrely and unlikable to me. So obviously. I think it would have been like if the White Witch had been cast as a man. Oh, interesting. I think that he probably would have been, hmm, I think it would have been like more physical violence, don't yeah, you? I was gonna say, yeah, like there would probably be more like battling and more like aggression. Yeah. Whereas I, you feel like with her, because she's a woman or something, it's a lot more like temptations and like manipulation and all this stuff. Yeah, it's interesting that she tempts him with like food. Yeah. Um, yeah. And like, you and know, like, and she's like petting him and like telling him all these nice things and mm-hmm. yeah like I'm gonna make you a duke of my castle yeah I hadn't yeah. really thought about that but that's really interesting that she's tempting him kind of with like her beauty I mean he's definitely very impressed by her yes yeah when she's jingling she got bells on literally yeah she's and yeah when they cast her as Tilda Swinton in mm-hmm. the movie that's like perfect casting because she is this kind of like alien beautiful tall kind of scary but like very alluring looking person in general and so that helped me make sense more when I was reading The White Witch than any other character in the movie. Yeah, Tilda Swinton was kind of born to play a part like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean that as a total compliment, Tilda Swinton oh, if you yeah. ever happen to be listening to this podcast. Um, Come on, talk about your experience please. So yeah, we want to hear all about it. So I, I also just think like this sense that all of the trees are on her side really creeped mm. me out and is a really <laughs> cool idea and like just one mention of that I think is enough to really build the world that much deeper because you really feel like you're just like constantly surrounded by yeah. people who are against people, trees, beings that are against you. Yeah, and you get this this understanding of like all the panic and like police state basically that they're living in how like fearful everyone is because they just know they're being watched all the time. Yeah. The beavers were so sweet. The beavers. So good. And so afraid. I did feel like Mr. Beaver was super condescending to Mrs. Beaver. I don't know if you picked up on that. (laughs) Oh yeah. He keeps telling her to like stop packing all this shit on the trip because like they need to go or something. Yeah. And Mrs. Beaver actually (laughs) seems to know what's going on and he keeps being like Mrs. Beaver. Yeah. Like shut and she's it like down. very calmly of like, well, we have time and like, what do you want to do? Starve while we're there? And she ends up being right. Yeah, so. they were hungry and they were cold. And I always just. Always pack. Yeah. Well, you <laughs> should always bring snacks. Yeah. For the snacks. snacks. And pillows. Yeah. My mm-hmm. I also just enjoyed that he kept calling her Mrs. Beaver. Yeah. <laughs> Cute. That was so 1950. Yeah. Those beavers were really sweet. That that section of the book, too, is such like a reprieve where you just feel like, okay, they're safe. Like someone's helping them and guiding them for a moment. And like then they'll get to go back out. Yeah. For the whole – I mean, my copy of the book is highlighted basically solid. And then there's this whole section where they're with the beavers where I got a little bit of a break from taking notes, which was nice. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. What about um, Santa and Christmas? I Oh, my gosh. It was so weird. It was so <laughs> weird. And it was like they never actually – I don't know that they ever used the word Santa or Santa Claus. And maybe that's because he's kind of like combining different mythologies. But it's very clear oh. who this figure is supposed to be. I'm curious what you think about like Christmas as an idea in this book, especially being that it's this allegory about 
Christianity and about Christ, I think it's kind of interesting that there's this sort of subplot about Christmas being wiped from the face of the earth. Did you Mm. have any thoughts about that? Yeah, that's a good, that's a good observation. I didn't, I didn't initially, but now that you're talking about it, it's one, it's weird because Christians have this weird relationship with Christmas anyway, of like, it's a whole holiday for when Jesus is born but also there's all this like bad stuff, which is the worship of Santa and the replacement of Jesus with Santa or whatever, which I don't think they were dealing with at the time. So maybe he just didn't see it as problematic. Um, Not the commercialization of Christmas yet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now that you say that, that makes a lot of sense of like, based on my reading the book, I don't know if it's meant to re- uh, represent something religious so much as just something like pure and childlike basically. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's so awful that the queen would ban like, Christmas and just make it winter for no reason but it is so bizarre that he shows up he seems like just so out of place in the rest of the story because everything else is like old 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 mythology or just animals or something and he's just like hey I'm with my sleigh and presents just like you thought I would be right like (laughs) Like, you you thought I was gone but you were wrong I would have been like oh I guess so (laughs) (laughs) well and it's also like really lame presents too like he's here and it's like here's a bottle of medicine medicine. which in the end ends up being really great but obviously at the time as a kid I remember thinking like oh he was going to bring them toys and that's not what happened new clothes yeah I guess they're important like they live on forever too all those gifts and everything which is kind of cool but yeah as an adult I definitely had a new appreciation for the gifts but I think the Santa (laughs) scene is obviously like very out of nowhere yeah, you kind of want something a little bit more flashy, I think, when Santa comes. Instead, it's just like, here's a, here's something useful. <laughs> it's like, mm, okay. Okay, but luckily, all those things end up being very important at the end. We've barely talked about Aslan at all. I don't know yeah, how to pronounce his name. Is it Aslan or like Aslan? I've always heard it pronounced as Aslan. Okay, Aslan. So yeah, yeah. we've barely talked about him at all. He's this amazing lion that's meant to symbolize really everything good and Mm -hmm. powerful he seems to like unite all of these different worlds and he hasn't been around in years and years and years mr beaver says that he hasn't been around even since like before his father was born so there's this like mysticism about him and everybody's really excited because they've heard he's coming back and I think it's really interesting the way that the children respond to him. Yeah. When the children start hearing about Aslan, there's this really great quote that I pulled out of the book, and it's a little long, but I think it's important, so I'm going to read it. None of the children knew who Aslan was any more than you do, but the moment the beaver had spoken these words, everyone felt quite different. Perhaps it has sometimes happened to you in a dream that someone says something which you don't understand, but in the dream it feels as if it had some enormous meaning. Either a terrifying one, which turns the whole dream into a nightmare, or else a lovely meaning too lovely to put into words, which makes the dream so beautiful that you remember it all your life and are always wishing you could get into that dream again. It was like that now. At the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump in its inside. Oh, I loved that part. I actually love the line that comes right after it too, where it describes each of the kids' different feelings when they hear the name Aslan. And for me too because Aslan is such an interesting representation of God and and I'm in like a weird place right now with God in general and to hear to hear how each of the kids responded to it I wrote it down it actually was really nice for me and kind of reminded me of like 
a certain like nice childlike aspect to faith because Edmund feels horror because he's bad, whatever. But Peter feels bravery. Susan feels like her senses have awakened, like she smells something good and like hears something nice. And Lucy feels like summer has just started, like the same feeling. And all of those were just such like, besides Edmund, like lovely feelings instead of just like anxiety or like disillusionment or whatever, that it was just nice to hear that. Yeah. And this idea that something can be scary and overwhelming and bigger than you can understand and at the same time very reassuring, I think is a (laughs) neat concept. Um, Another line that I highlighted was people who have not been in Narnia sometimes think that a thing cannot be good and terrible at the same time. If the children had ever thought so, they were cured of it now. And that was... Yeah, again, after they had come into contact with Aslan. And I think that is really interesting in terms of a commentary on faith because no matter where you are in your relationship with faith, whatever religion you practice or don't practice, I do think that it's a good demonstration of how complicated your feelings with this like bigger being can be and you can be afraid of it and you can embrace it and you can want to share in it and also be trying to push it away all at the same time. Mm, yeah, that's very poignant. There's a, there's a line, I think, in that section too that has been immortalized on many like a Christian Instagram post or whatever, but it's the Mr. Beaver or Lucy asks like, well, is he a tame lion? And he says, tame? No, of course he's not tame, but he's good. And it it encompasses, I think, the way, yeah, the way a lot of people can feel about God or about divinity of like, it's not uh, not something that I can handle necessarily, but I know it's not going to hurt me. And yeah, it is a very like complex feeling. And I feel like he did a really good job because Aslan could have been as simple as just like a nice friendly line that like helps them through their problems or whatever. But instead he is this like mythical thing who's like sort of distant, but sort of wonderful but also was just like gone for a while without explanation, which is pretty terrible. And, you know, the witch has had her reign for so long and everything. So, yeah, I feel like the the creatures of Narnia are very faithful and forgiving creatures. So, like, be okay with that. Yeah, and the kids trust him implicitly right away. Yeah, yeah. I thought that was really interesting. Like, the girls in particular go through this very harrowing experience with him, like, sneaking out to follow him in the middle of the night they watch him with his head hanging low walking toward these creatures that are trying to destroy him knowing that they're going to kill him because he's sacrificed himself for Edmund they watch him be like brutalized and killed and then he's resurrected and then they sort of just like follow him and they do as he says as they head into this battle to destroy the white witch's army and there's no question about like well, this crazy thing kind of just happened. What was that about? They don't ask him a lot of questions. They just sort of do as he says. And Mm -hmm. it was just such like an interesting portrayal of implicit, unconditional trust. Yeah, and and just sort of understanding of like, I don't understand all of it, but I understand enough to know that this was important and this was good and I can, yeah, and I can follow this guy wherever he says. We should talk about that too, that scene, because that is kind of like the centerpiece of the whole story. The scene, yeah, so I, again, most of what I've learned about the details of that scene and exactly how it all ties to the biblical story come from Wikipedia and some very basic knowledge um, after going to church with my family over the years. So I'd love, because you clearly have some more background in Christian history and 
in the Bible than I do. I'd love if you could share a little bit about your impressions of that central scene Mm -hmm. and how it plays out in this book that's targeted for children. Yeah, it's so artfully done. And so like, yeah, I really appreciate how he wrote that because that scene, of course, is like a pretty strong allegory for like Jesus's death and resurrection which people just usually write, say in one word is the gospel, which is like, we are all in, in God's story. Like we are all Edmund, like we all have done terrible things that have put the entire world into jeopardy and that have like dismantled things. And like, we've all done something awful basically. And the idea that there's a being that both understands that and doesn't make you feel bad about it, but also is going to now bear the consequences of what you've done and make it all right is really wonderful in some ways too. And I think can feel really, um, really nice and validating, especially when you're a little kid and you're so worried about being bad and like ruining stuff for everyone or not understanding why you've been bad. And you get the sense that not only Aslan does this, but he, he has the, you know, the secret talk with Edmund where he like basically helps him become better. And they say later, like Edmund didn't realize like what Aslan had to do basically. Mm -hmm. So Aslan even has the like tact to keep it secret from Edmund knowing like that would crush him, like the guilt. And just beyond that, like you see a little bit of Aslan's humanity and the way that, that he's walked to the stone table where he's about to be killed. Like his head is down. He feels awful. He's not like playing it like a joke or just feeling less, you know, like totally stoic, like he's sad. And there's something really like, powerful about that. And that is, that's what Jesus does when he's about to be killed. Like he's really sad. And there's a story in, I think in Matthew where he's like begging God, like, don't let make me do this. Like, is there any other way basically? And that's cool too, because you, you get the sense that like, yeah, this wasn't an act of heroism. Like he wasn't doing this for looks. Like, in fact, he probably would have preferred another way if he could have. So for me reading that, that again was really special because I think I've heard the gospel so many times in my life, it starts to lose meaning and start to lose weight and to see it portrayed in like this fantasy version and with children and with children's actions. And it like had a a nice way of simplifying it and also making it a lot more majestic than it had felt for me in a long time. So it was nice. It really is heartbreaking. Just the image of him walking toward the stone table. And like you said, he knows what is about to happen. And I don't think I knew that that element of the Bible story. I don't think I knew that Jesus was so distressed about it. I mean, obviously as a mortal being, I have to think that he would be, but I think in my limited understanding of the story, you know, he was like doing what he felt he had to do. And it was this very like sort of heroic sacrifice and Mm -hmm. seeing it played out with this big cat really who Mm -hmm. I as an animal lover am drawn to a lion and I think even just that visual is really powerful to people who are innately drawn to animals like Aslan Uh, yeah Just, just picturing him being so embarrassed and ashamed of what has to happen and then for him to be shaved like there are just so many parts of that it's it's horrible to think about Mm -hmm. and I think this idea of like deep magic being the thing that is going to overcome his death just to kind of clarify there the reason that the white witch believes that it's her right to kill Edmund is because there's apparently some magical law that she owns the soul of any traitor. So 
when these other siblings find Edmund and realize that he's betrayed them and gone to the White Witch, she goes to Aslan and says, according to the laws of magic, I can now kill him because his soul belongs to me. And we find out later on that according to this like even deeper magic, if an innocent being steps up to sacrifice his life in place of that traitor, then death itself can work backward. Mm. And I think the idea of like a deeper magic as a for a kid is such like an interesting way to illustrate these big ideas of faith and mortality that are just so hard for me to grasp even now as an adult. It is kind of amazing. And like, it's probably a better way to describe, you know, like sin and evil and light and dark and God and the devil than than anything else to just say like it's magic like essentially we don't know but it does like set the rules basically and it's still unsatisfying to me even as adult like why but why and like who made the deep magic and everything but but it is helpful and it still does its job of illustrating like how yeah how big the sacrifice is and how wonderful it is that Aslan would do this and and how sad and everything so And then the idea of the stone table, as I understand it, the idea is that when the stone table breaks after Aslan is resurrected, it's this idea of like the standard rules that most of us live by, those rules are breaking and there's this deeper Mm -hmm. magic at work. Is that how you understood it too? That's probably the more accurate (laughs) because my understanding too, it's probably, it could be probably multiple things, but I think that's right because in the stone table, there are like these like ancient etchings or something probably with the old rules. But in the biblical story, I thought it might mean two things because one, there was like a stone literally over Jesus's grave and that Mm -hmm. was rolled aside when he came out. Um, And the other part of it too was when Jesus dies in the crucifixion, this curtain that's in the temple that that divided like the Holy of Holies from the place where people would just meet. And the Holy of Holies was supposedly where God, like God's spirit lived basically. So no one could go back there unless you're all purified and it was special. So when Jesus died, it ripped in half, like on its own. Practically. Oh, wow. And also that was a big deal because apparently that curtain was like five inches thick. Like it's big, like, and so it ripped in half when he died. Oh, wow. So that's also what I thought of when I remembered the stone table breaking. The other thing that I read was that somebody thought that it might also be in reference to the stone tablets on which the Ten Commandments were written. Oh, yeah. yeah. And this idea that with, and I could very well be butchering this, so correct me if I'm wrong, but the idea that when Jesus was resurrected, it's sort of the beginning of what we now think about as the New Testament. And so it was like the old rules, the Ten Commandments that were the basis of the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. There's this kind of like breaking of those so that we can then move on to this like next set of stories that make up the New Testament. Does that make sense? That makes sense. And I think it it makes sense too in that like and Jesus said this too when he was teaching of like, I am here to do away with the old rules because I am here to satisfy the old rules. Like it's not that the ad- the old rules are wrong. It's because they're now basically undone because of what I'm going to do. Hmm. So they're not necessary anymore. We don't need them. We don't need to be separated from God. We don't need to do all these cleansing rituals or whatever. Like you can just be with me. Hmm. So I think that makes sense. Yeah. It's so interesting for me to reflect now on reading this because – just about me. Um, My parents were divorced when I was very young and my mom is Jewish and my dad is Christian. And so Mm. from a very young age, kind of like my spirituality and my religion was a little bit of like an awkward thing. 
Mm-hmm. Um, my dad, I would say, is much more religious than my mom, but my mom is culturally Jewish, and so we always celebrated a lot of cultural Jewish traditions mm-hmm. in my mom's house, but my dad and his family go to church every week, and so I always kind of fell somewhere in the middle and was never quite sure where I fit in, and I think that had I known when I was a kid reading this book that it was this allegory mm. about the crucifixion, I may have perhaps not have connected to it as much because I would have felt like I was like betraying this kind of pact that I had with my parents where I wasn't going to go in either direction when I was younger. Okay. Yeah. So it's interesting. So for, when, you, when you were as a kid, were you drawn to any aspect of either religion in particular? I think I loved, like I loved the traditions with my mom and my grandmother. I loved lighting the candles at Hanukkah. I loved Passover. I loved going to temple for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and the high holidays. At the same time, my dad would take me to church and I loved the singing and just sort of the community aspect and seeing my dad and my stepmom be so strong in their faith at a religious level, whereas, you know, my mom, it was so much more about family and culture. I was just always kind of intrigued by their convictions from a more spiritual perspective. Yeah, yeah. So it was kind of a weird thing. And I would I would go to church with them because obviously I was like too little to be left alone, but I would bring a book with me because I didn't think I was supposed to listen because I didn't I just kind of thought that, yeah. Yeah. I thought my role was to kind of just like stay the course and celebrate holidays and not really go too far in either direction with like my personal beliefs. And so I didn't really learn a lot about either religion beyond mm-hmm. just like major celebrations and that sort of thing. So I, I, it's interesting to me, obviously at that time I wouldn't have picked up on any of the symbolism in this book, but I think it would have mm-hmm. totally freaked me out had I known any of it back then. Yeah. I was going to say like, do you think any of this for a kid is actually comforting or is it just like overwhelming? Like if you were as a kid to understand what all this meant? I think the idea of this like big, strong lion who you can trust unconditionally and who's going to lead you into and out of battle and who is going to be able to beat death just so that he can like come back to you and protect you. Mm -hmm. I think that's very comforting. I mean, like I said, Mr. Tumnus was hugely traumatic for me. There's a lot of parts of this book that are extremely disturbing, but I think when you boil it down to just – Aslan and his character and his steadfastness, I think that's like a really powerful image for a kid. What do you think? I think I feel I could go either way because in some ways, as I said, like Aslan has this trustworthiness to him and I love that C.S. Lewis made him an animal instead of a man because an animal, I think as a kid, you just like connect with and spend more time with in like your play or your imagination. And so he does just seem more friendly and more cuddly. But I think I think I could go the other way too because accompanying this idea of Aslan is like the horrific confirmation that like there are monsters, there are people trying to kill you, there's dire consequences for your, you know, for your ambition or like your little kid desires or whatever that are bad. And and the kind of like worrisome feeling that like Aslan can just leave anytime he wants and he'll just mm-hmm. disappear for centuries. I think as a kid, that actually is really not comforting and kind of scary because 
like so much of your safety is just attachment and knowing like no one's going to abandon you basically. And, and he abandons people. Like that's what he does. Mm-hmm. And he comes in in times of need, but then he was just gone for so long. And so, and I think he's kind of gone by the end of the story, right? Like he disappears. Yeah. He leaves, I think after the battle and once he sort of like crowns the kids as the Kings and Queens of Narnia, I think he pieces out. Yeah. And that's, that's scary. It like, is. I, I guess it's supposed to like spur you on to be like, okay, now like step into your role and be the leader you should be. But it's kind of scary. It's like, well, he's the one that like makes everything make sense. And he just like leaves when he wants to. That's not cool. Yeah, that is pretty scary. I hadn't thought about it that way, but I think you're right. I think just like the presence of a character like Aslan is comforting for kids. The potential absence of him is mm-hmm. scary. So that's it's a really scary. good point. Yeah. And I guess it's probably like, supposed to be realistic because you don't always feel like the presence of God in your faith walk or whatever. But but at least you're supposed to like reassure that like he's always there or listening, you know, or something. So that's that's kind of scary, that, that feeling of abandonment. Yeah. These are all such big ideas. What part of it do you think is a moral or a lesson that a kid reader can wrap his or her arms around? Ooh, that is a good question a kid. Or is it just like a great fantasy epic story? And is that maybe that's okay too? Yeah, I think, well, I think he's definitely got something to say, you know, to kids. And I think there's definitely that if you want it. It's also a really wonderful fantasy. Like if if that's all you take from it, it's pretty, it's pretty lovely. But I think as a kid, I'm trying to even remember like what made an impression on me as a kid, like probably bravery and doing the right thing. And these kids are called to do really adult things. Like they have to run from someone, they have to hide, they have to like ration, they have to go to battle, all these things. And when you feel even like Lucy, you're the tiniest one in the group when you feel empowered and also like it's necessary that you can get, you need to go out and like take on your role and become a queen and and do what you need to do. I think that can feel, that can feel nice for a kid sometimes. Yeah. I think the stakes are also just kind of interesting to think about because at the end of the day, this is all still happening in a world that they've walked into through a wardrobe. Yes. Yeah. It's kind of crazy when you like step back again, maybe it's just as an adult when you can step back and be like, what's actually at stake here? Because again, can you go back to the lamppost and just go home? Mm-hmm. It's just kind of a weird thing to think about. Yeah. And oh my gosh, is there anything so disheartening as when they just fall out of the wardrobe and it's they're the same age and they've lost all those adult years and everything? Yeah. Ugh. So sad. So that bumped sad. Me out. Yeah. So did coming back to this book make you love it more or did it ruin it for you? It made me love it more. Like I said earlier, it was such a I don't know. I've ha- I haven't had something in a while like capture my imagination so much and feel like such a nice dreamland that I wanted to go play in in a long time. And I really felt that with this book and it was just, yeah, thinking about it like all day at my office job or whatever. I was like, oh, there it is. Cool. I'm so glad you could kind of like mentally go through the wardrobe in your nine to five. Yeah. <laughs> it was kind of nice just to remember it was there. Mm-hmm. I feel like we probably could continue to talk about all of this for a long time, but... I am going to close up our conversation about this particular book. And I would love if you could share a recommendation of a book that you have read recently or that you're reading right now that you think our listeners would be interested in. Uh, Yeah, I will recommend a book I just finished called Fraud by David Rakoff, I think is his name, who is very, very similar to David Sedaris. And I think they're, in fact, friends. Um, but he's unfortunately passed away, but his book is kind of a collection of like personal essays and they're very dry and very funny. 
and um, yeah, nice little observations on the world. So Fraud by David Rakoff. And then uh, just now I just started a book called Inspired by Rachel Pellet-Evans, which is a religious book. It's about kind of re returning to the Bible and trying to see it for what it is, as opposed to like a manual or this rule book we need to follow, but actually like legends and letters and stories and this weird thing that's been cobbled together over time and kind of something I need, which is just to like a whole refresh on my perspective of it. Because for a lot of people, the Bible uh, has brought a lot of trauma and a lot of like abusive ideas and it's in there. And um, how do we how do we read it without feeling like we need to incorporate that into our idea of God, that like, it's good that God wants to commit genocide or things like that. So I've only just started it. So this might be a preemptive <laughs> recommendation. I might unrecommend, but I, I like Rachel Held Evans and I like her, her perspective on faith. And so I'm excited to read this. Cool. Well, thank you for those recommendations. I'll include links to both of those books in our show notes. I'm also going to include a link to Good Christian Fun, which is Caroline's awesome podcast. I have to plug it again because it is one of my favorites. As I mentioned earlier, I certainly don't have like a super easy or logical relationship with faith. I did not grow up in a world that was big on Christian pop culture, but I totally appreciate the podcast and um, I just learn a lot from it every week. So don't be don't be turned off if you're not you know somebody that (laughs) relates closely yourself to christian pop culture it's a fascinating study of subcultures and of people and it's honestly been like a huge inspiration to me as i've gotten ssr off the ground so everybody go listen to gcf it's so good that is so kind. And and we say this on the show and I'll reiterate for anyone else listening, like it's not a podcast where we're telling you to be Christian or go to church and where it's not also one where we're going to make fun of you for being a Christian. It's just kind of an open invite and an examination of, yeah, this weird subculture that I happen to be raising and so did my co-host. So yeah. But thank you for saying that. It's very nice. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's fascinating. So everybody go listen and thank you, Caroline, so much for your time. I had so much fun chatting with you. Yes, thank you for inviting me and giving me a reason to read Chronicles of Narnia again. What a dream. Oh, yeah, my pleasure. All right, thank you so much. (laughs) Have a good day. Thank you, you too. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast. <laughs>